and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers and readers from across the province, territory, and even the country. My guest for this episode is the author of a beautiful memoir that weaves together gorgeous writing with bits and pieces from her family's archive. Here she is to introduce herself. Hello, uh, my name is Danielle Geller. I am born to the Sitnajini, born for the Belagana, which means that I was born to the Black Street Wood people, and my dad was a white guy from Jersey. And my first book, Dog Flowers, I wrote. Um, about six months after my mother passed away. And I always thought I was writing about her. And as I wrote the book, I realized I was actually writing about much more than that. It was about my family, my sisters especially, and about um, taking care of the people we love. And now I live in Victoria, British Columbia, (laughs) which I never expected to be here. Um, And I teach at the University of Victoria, in addition to um, teaching at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Danielle's book, Dog Flowers, is a finalist for the 2022 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize and the 2022 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. In our conversation, we talked about how the stories we tell about our families impact our memories, and how Danielle worked with her mom's journals and pictures for the book. Danielle starts this episode with a reading from Dog Flowers. So the title of this chapter is Them Supposable Being, and the titles all came from my mother's diaries or her letters, unless they're in brackets, in which case I'm sort of like imposing my own title on that chapter. But this particular one was about things that people were uncomfortable talking about specifically. Growing up, my mother told us very little about her family. We didn't know our grandparents' names or how many brothers and sisters she had. We weren't told when new cousins were born or when her own parents and brother died. In a journal entry on March 1st, 1995, I love you, mom. Remember, you still touch my heart. After she met my father, my mother left her home and her mountains, her family and her future there. She once told me the only way to leave the reservation was to join the military or to marry off, and she told me never to go back. The only things I knew about my family were the few things she told me when I visited her in South Florida. She told me that my grandfather was a medicine man and that her sister, my aunt, was a witch. She practices black magic, my mother said. Then she caught my eye and held my gaze because I didn't dare look away but we're healers, baby. You have to use your magic for good. If you are Dene, this next story is not perhaps a story you will want to read. Visiting the res felt eerily similar to visiting my mother in Florida. While my aunties and their friends partied, my cousins and I slumbered in front of the television and waited for the call that would jolt us awake, the call to pick them up, ferry them around, and feed and coax them into their beds at the end of the night. One night, after we dropped off my aunt and her friends, my cousins and I decided to drive down to Gallup to see a movie in the theater. 
We borrowed my aunt's truck. I offered to drive. The reservation glowed like the surface of the moon. I'm sorry about my mom, my cousin brother said suddenly, but quietly. Don't be, I said. My mom was the same way. I told him about the nights in Florida that I spent shuttling her back and forth between her house and sneakers, her favorite dive bar. Yeah, he asked. Yeah, I promise. As we passed Sagebrush, the liquor store that sat just outside the border of the Navajo Reservation, my cousin's sister popped her head out of the back seat and told her brother I didn't believe in skinwalkers. Her voice was laughing, incredulous. I looked into the rearview mirror, into my cousin's sister's shining eyes, and then at her brother. Do you? I asked. He seemed reluctant to speak. I knew very little about him but I did know he had been living in Phoenix since he turned 18. And by virtue of his off-reservation-ness, I hated to admit I trusted his opinion more than my cousin's sister's. I don't know, he said, sliding his palms over his thighs, but I've seen some things. Like what, I asked. I stared at the edge of the road and watched for rabbits, for coyotes, for what I wasn't sure. The only animal I had seen on the reservation at night was a cow a fat brown and white steer whose heads hung stupidly into the road. But there was a chill in my blood, the same feeling I had when I was a girl sharing ghost stories in the darkness of a hurricane blackout. Like eyes, my cousin said. He was in the mountains at night with some friends when he heard a sound in the woods. Then he saw two red lights like embers burning in the dark. I told my cousins that my mother had told me their mother practiced black magic. My cousin's sister laughed. That's what my brother's ex-wife says. That's why he can't see his kids no more. She says we're all skinwalkers. When my sister and I were little, we played a game we called animals. We pretended to be horses and took turns vaulting over the ottoman on all fours, or we pretended to be lionesses and groomed our arms with our tongues. After Jurassic Park was released, the entire neighborhood played dinosaurs. The oldest boy claimed T-Rex, and I became the queen of the raptors. Our youngest sisters were relegated to prey, the gazelle-necked gallimimus of the open fields. We stopped playing animals after we moved to Pennsylvania. We were too old, and the girls we met at school weren't interested in pretending to be horses and dinosaurs, though I still often crawled around the house on all fours. In middle school, I told my best friend, Sherry, that my Indian grandmother had cursed me when I visited the reservation as a child. I told Sherry, a wolf spirit, took over my body on full moons. All the wolf craved was flesh and blood. I can't say Sherry believed me, but she certainly played along. If I signaled the change with a growl, she would take off running. I followed her shrieks to the neighborhood, and she always ended up back at my apartment, where she yelled at Fran that I had tracked her home by the scent of her blood. Fran kept a giant stuffed banana plushie tucked behind the TV hutch, and she would whack both Sherry and me with banana until I, laughing hysterically, changed back into the girl I had always been. I did not realize what I was claiming to be or why it might be taboo. You aren't supposed to talk about skinwalkers. Stories inspire fear, and fear makes them stronger. Fear draws them to you like blood draws sharks in the water. Still, the stories are told. In Dene Bajad, a skinwalker is ye nadloshi. With, with it, he goes on all fours. 
In some stories, skinwalkers are described as animals, coyotes, wolves, or owls with evil red or yellow eyes. In others, skinwalkers are half animal, half human, adorned with antlers or skulls or animal pelts. Skinwalkers acquire their powers of transformation through black magic, through the most evil of deeds. And though they can use their magic to cause harm, most of the stories about skinwalkers that persist in legend sound like hauntings. A skinwalker dashes in front of a car's headlights or taps on the window of a moving car or climbs onto the roof of a home. The accounts of skinwalkers vary, but in the stories I read and am told, one thing remains constant. During the day, Ye Nagoshi walks around in human skin. There are two stories about the way Pauline Tom. I always considered my mother superstitious. She told me it was bad luck to wear a ring on any finger but your ring finger. She told me that if you saw an owl during the day, someone close to you would die. She told me not to keep the image of a wolf in my house because it would bring bad luck. She told me to never stare at the moon. My cousin's sister and I visited the Navajo Nation Zoo, and I was surprised to find a pair of great horned owls perching on an old tree in broad daylight. According to the placard in front of their exhibit, they had been injured on the road and rehabilitated by the zoo. When I told my cousin's sister what my mother had told me about owls, she laughed. I never heard that before. My aunt held an entirely different set of superstitions. She told me if you didn't eat spicy food, it meant you were a jealous person. She told me to never buy an animal or I would become poor. I could not make myself believe in the superstitions my mother held. I could not make myself believe in ye nadloshi. My aunt and my mother stopped speaking before my mother died, I believed. Not because my aunt practiced black magic, but because they disagreed about how to care for their families best. My family is not full of skinwalkers. It feels more complicated than that. But one night, my cousin sister and I woke up to the sound of something scrabbling on the roof. She reached for my arm under the blanket. It's probably a raccoon, I whispered. How did it get up there? She whispered back. I imagined a friendly mouse face with bright eyes and fuzzy ears. I imagined turning on the light and making us safe. Then I remembered a story my aunt had told us of a tall figure she saw through the window at night, and I could not make myself get out of bed. Perfect. And my first question uh, is, I always ask a weird question, and I have a new weird question for this year. <laughs> uh, and it is, if you could only read one book or only watch one TV show forever and always, which would it be and why? If I could only watch one TV show or only read one book forever and ever, that's a really good question. Um, if it was only one TV show, it might be, wait, can it be multiple seasons or just one show? Like one season? It can be multiple seasons. If it's multiple seasons, it's RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. And it's so funny, but also like there's so many emotions. Um, so that would definitely be my TV show. And you have books a book? is harder. Yeah, books is books much is harder. harder. I agree. I, <laughs> I would pick one. Yeah. 
Okay, let's dive into the book. I wanted to ask you about how the book started, because you mentioned that you started it um, six months after your mom died. But it seems like, as re in reading it, that it wasn't really like you ever planned on writing a book, that it kind right. of just happened. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that process for you. Yeah, no, you're right. I never planned on writing a book. And the way that Dog Flowers started was actually when my mother passed away, um, my sister couldn't make it down to Florida to see her in the hospital with me. And after I was home, I was living in Boston at the time, she was su supposed to come visit me there because I had brought back, you know, my, my mother's diaries and letters and photographs. And we were supposed to go through those things together, but she didn't make it to Boston. Um, she had an old warrant out for her arrest and she, um, instead of getting to Boston, she ended up serving time about six months after my mom had passed. And while she was in jail, I started writing her these letters about our mother, but also about our childhood and about some of the things that I was like reading in uh, those letters and diaries because my sister doesn't have a really good memory of our childhood. Um, you know, she's blocked a lot of things out. And so Doc Flowers really began as the series of letters that I was sending to my sister and um, the guards would always, they like always knew when it was, um, something for her because I was sending her these giant, <laughs> like these <laughs> giant envelopes that were just like 20 pages, like 30 pages at a time that were folded up as tight as I could to get like cram them into these letters. And so like, yeah, that was how a lot of the, the book got started. When did you decide that it, that it was a book that you wanted to move from it being this kind of conversation with your sister through letters to being a conversation, I mean, with your family, but also with readers too. Yeah. So I wrote in those letters, I wrote 80,000 words or something like I had it in two months. I don't know. Like, um, I also, uh, I have bipolar disorder. And so, uh, after that very long period of depression, I sort of emerged from it and got a little manic. And, and so I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't going to work. I was just writing all of this down for my sister. And, you know, when she would write back, she said like she was passing it around to all of her friends there um, and they were all reading it. And I'd gotten a lot of encourage from them to keep writing. Um, and so I in, in Boston, there's this place called Grub Street and they offer a lot of writing workshops. And so I I took this memoir writing workshop and I, again, like got a lot of encouragement. Um, and I was at this point in my career where. I'd gone to school for library and I got my degree in library and archives. Um, I had been applying for a bunch of jobs. I'd gotten some late stage interviews, but I was still sort of cobbling together all this contract work. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to apply for another round of library jobs. I'm going to apply for an MFA program. And, you know, whichever happens first, like that's, I don't know, my fate. <laughs> I don't really believe in fate. But yeah, it was just kind of, you know, like, see what happens and then let the world, the universe decide. Yeah. 
It's interesting because I, I don't know if the Canadian title has, or the Canadian cover has this, but I know the American one does where it says a memoir, an archive. And I was really, I'm curious that it's not on the cover of the Canadian one, but that's a question I think for, for someone that's not you. Um, but I wondered about merging your, your two experiences as an archivist with the writer and because I loved, I loved the footnotes. Like I'm a dork that way, where I love the footnotes. <laughs> I loved how you included um, all the material. Like it just was so interesting to me, and I, I would love to hear about how you brought those two parts of yourself together in the book. Yeah, um, you know the the significance of the archive was there pretty early. I didn't always know. Um, how that would appear in the book. But part of my process of grieving my mother or sort of the way that I entered into that was I I couldn't quite open up myself to her loss. And so when I was first going through, um, you know, these things that I inherited from her, I treated it like I was an archivist, you know, I had my manila folders, I had like my box that I had borrowed, and I'm using quotation marks, because I never returned it. Um, You know, like one of those uh, cart, like page boxes, um, just put the folders in. And it was just a way of like, dissociating from my grief and from that loss. But and yeah, and so it was like this weird way that I was trying to work through this grief. And when I was at the University of Arizona, which is where I did my MFA, I start, I took this class on um, documentary poetics. And in that class, we read Ann Carson's Knox and Lady Long Soldier's Whereas and Eleni Siglianos' Book of John. And it's all poetry. <laughs> it's not memoir. But it's uh, these poets were like writing about loss through these various documents and for Ann Carson it was like photographs and things that her brother who had passed had sort of left behind and sometimes she was writing about the object sometimes it was just there and it was like juxtaposed with um she had done some translation work as well um and in the book of John uh Eleni Siclianos had done a lot of different ways of interacting with some of that work and one I remember one of the poem slash s i don't even know what to call them really it's a poem maybe she had lost her father and he had been homeless and when he died there was this you know official account by the by the police of what had been um on his person at that time and and what she was writing about was not only like what was there or what was in this record but also noting what wasn't um that one might expect to have been Um, with him at that time. And that was sort of true for my experience of, you know, like reading into some of like the, the things that were present that my mother had left behind, but then all of the absences and all of the things that I wanted to find, but couldn't. And a lot of what I wanted to find was any kind of insight into her emotional life, because it, a lot of it wasn't there. And that was, uh, I think, the place where I could no longer be the objective archivist. I was just a daughter, sort of like lost. And I think that was maybe what was so interesting about using the footnotes for me was because it was like, 
it was your your memory and then there was it really kind of contrasted how your mom remembered certain things or how she wrote about it and and what was there but really what wasn't there too and I found that really interesting did you know you wanted to use the footnotes in that way from the beginning or or had you played with other yeah no I didn't know and again that's part of like I didn't actually know how how the archive was going to appear um in print and I didn't know if uh, we had sort of talked about it being like one of those, what's it called? I don't even remember the word. When it's like a center fold where you have a couple of things um, or if there were going to be no photographs or scans and if it was just going to be me transcribing things. Um, but the way that it finally started to work out was I started thinking about all of the object that, objects I was including as these moments of transition in the book. And, and so at, at like different intersections, there are, you know, scans of her photos, some scans of like random objects. I remember I scanned this uh, monthly calendar from Sneakers, which is uh, the, the dive bar that she always went to. But the diaries themselves, I, I struggled with because it was harder to isolate the, the, the parts of those pages that I felt were most significant. And, and it was also the place where I felt most in conversation with my mother because she isn't here. Like she isn't here to speak to or have those conversations with. Um, and so that was when I started um, including those footnotes because uh, it was a, it was a way of immediately like referring to or like drawing a bridge between my experience or my thoughts or my interpretations with her actual words. Yeah. I wanted to, uh, I want to nerd out on structure a little bit because <laughs> 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 I love talking about structure and I loved the structure of this book because I, I love when memoir is nonlinear and I, because I think that's more true to life than, yeah. than, making it all chronological um but I want yeah how did you decide on on the structure for the book and maybe it, it was because of the way you were writing the letters but um I I just would love to hear more about how you decided to put the book together the way it is yeah no that was really hard <laughs> because I mean honestly like the book has had so many shapes like structures or forms um Early on, it, it was a memoir, and it it wasn't quite chronological, but it was also much more confusing. <laughs> and, uh, one of my former teachers from my undergraduate program, Kim Van Okamata, um, she had read one of the very, very first drafts of the book, and she was like, it's confusing. Like, maybe there could be a little more chronology here. Um, and I tried... <laughs> <laughs> I did try to make it more chronological, but it's just not, it's not how my brain works. And so it was a memoir, you know, first it was in present tense and then it went into past tense and then it came back into present tense. When I was at the University of Arizona, it became an essay collection. And then once I found an editor, it sort of, it mostly turned back into a memoir. Um, but the, but the structure itself or the way that I finally, found a way to organize it was actually um, 
the chronology wasn't the beginning of my life to the end of my life. It was, it was this process of discovery and like these different stages of unearthing something and trying to grapple with it. And then, you know, in that, in that next section, Oh, I've, I've unearthed something else. And like, now what do I do with this? And so very early on, you know, the thing that I struggled with and even before my mother passed away, um, but that really, that it changed again uh, as I was working through this loss um, was my relationship with my father and my father's family and all of the things that they had told me about my mother, most of which were lies. And it was when it was when she passed away and I first started glimpsing who she was that I was able to recognize or understand or I I guess like reconcile who I thought she was with what I had been told and then who my dad was and, and, and how he, I wouldn't say shaped, but sort of the outsized influence my father had in all of our lives, even when he wasn't like an active person in our lives. It was, he was sort of a shadow constantly. Yeah. I find it interesting in your book, but also in, in other memoirs that kind of deal with um, family stories is how the kind of narratives that are told within family say so much about who we are within that family, but also like it's one of those things as we get older and we start to kind of peel back the layers, we can see where they came from and how often they like are protecting certain things that aren't true. I don't know if that makes sense, but that really came across in, in the book about kind of unpackaging the stories and figuring out, you know, because we all have our different stories that we bring into a family, but there's also like where the truth is, is such an interesting thing too. Yeah. And so how did you, like, I think it's interesting with family stories because, especially when we're writing nonfiction, because there's an element of like telling the truth, but like, we'll never really be able to tell the the truth. And how did you, how did you deal with that part of it? Like, you know, telling the truth, but also being honest to your story and your truth, which may be different than your dad or your sister or your grandmother. Yeah. I mean, truth in my family has always been a really hard thing to parse out um, for many reasons. One, um, generational shame uh, has has sort of created a lot of secret keeping. You know, I can't count how many times someone would tell me something and say, oh, but don't tell your sister, especially, you know, especially don't tell your sister. Or my dad would, you know, tell me something. Well, don't tell your grandmother, right? Like his mom, because he would get in trouble. Or my grandmother would tell me, don't tell your father. You know, like there's so many different variations. When my mom would call me and ask for money, go don't tell your grandma. Because, you know, like it's just this constant um, feeling of, of wanting to hide something that you're ashamed of from other people. And, you know, one of the things that I, I 
found really difficult when my mom passed away was, you know, growing up, I was a good kid, right? Which is not uncommon in, with, in families where uh, your parents are alcoholics, right? Like one of the, one of the kids is the good kid. Um, and one of the kids is the kid who acts out. And my sister was the kid who acted out. And my grandmother would always say like, oh, to her, oh, you're just like your mom. Right. And to me, you know, I was, um, I was everything good in my dad because my dad was my grandma's favorite. And no matter what he did, um, she was going to protect him, uh, and, and do everything that she could to make sure that he was comfortable or had what he wanted. And after my mom passed away, I began to realize how much like her I was, um, because she had grown up with parents who were alcoholics and she was the oldest daughter and she did really well in school and she took care of her family. And all she wanted to do was take care of her dad when he got sick um, and she couldn't. And that really ate her up. But that was, you know, that was one of the hardest truths I, I confronted because I had put so much distance between me and my mom and she had put so much distance between us and to have this feeling of like, Oh my gosh, like actually we were so much alike and that like wanting, you know, like I wish I had had her to talk to, you know, about things that we shared and that, that loss. Like I didn't even know that that's a thing that I wanted. And now that I know that it's a thing that I wanted, I, I also can never have it. Yeah. But, oh, so truth. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, there was also, there's also a lot of mental illness in my family. Um, My dad, you know, was uh, in a, in the psych ward for like a delusional psychosis, psychotic episode at one point. Um, and so his version of, of reality was a little bit different from mine. And so a lot of what I've had to do is negotiate with people who don't share my sense of reality and in many different contexts, whether, uh, I'm talking to someone who really buys into a lot of different kinds of conspiracy theories or when I'm talking to my family on the reservation who have like very different religious beliefs uh, and cultural beliefs, and I'm an atheist and I'm very skeptical and it's really hard for me to believe in anything. Um, but, you know, I think I've always tried to be objective and sometimes to a fault, but it, it feels like what, what then happens in my writing is I'm open to a lot of different possibilities. And it's really hard for me to say this, like, you know, identify one thing, like, this is it, like, this is the version of reality that is most true. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, I I liked um, how you were kind of, it seemed more like you were grappling with the truth than you mm-hmm. were trying to find the truth. And I th- yeah. also think that's like a very, natural human experience right that we're all we want to find the truth but more often we're just constantly kind of like a cat playing with a ball of yarn we're never really (laughs) gonna figure it out but we're gonna keep kind of scratching at it a little bit yeah yeah my last question for you is uh is about 
happy endings and how <laughs> and how I I I'm just curious like I find this uh in, I'm a nonfiction writer as well I write memoir and so I hate the idea that that stories need to have a happy ending um but I'm coming to terms with maybe it's just the fact that we have a very like kind of sterile view of happiness and that mm -hmm. like Roxanne Gay talks about it having a lot more texture than we give it credit for. And I would be interested in hearing what your thoughts are on happy endings and how you approach the ending of your book. Yeah, I mean, I'll come back to happiness. Um, but, you know, finding the end of my book was so hard um, because I was writing it. I wrote it over a period of six years. And over that six years, I, I would have these moments of like, oh, this is the ending of the book. Wait, no, no, this is the ending of the book. Oh, wait, no, I, maybe like that's not the ending, but maybe like this is the end of the book, which is a weird way to live a life, right? Um, with like that project, like constantly in your, in your mind. Um, and so when it came to um, writing it or knowing that I had this deadline with my publisher that was non-negotiable, <laughs> like I just had to turn it in, I had to end it. The only thing that I felt like I could do was start to write all of those different endings, you know, because there were so many different threads that I was trying to follow and some of those threads um, were never going to wrap up, not just like in a happy way, but in a satisfying way. You know, and just because like I was um, frustrated or unhappy about what that ending looked like, you know, thinking about um, when I went back to the reservation for my mother's memorial service and I met her family for the first time. And I met her sister, my aunt, and I met my aunt's daughter, um, my cousin's sister. Um, she immediately felt like family to me. And she immediately felt like my little sister. She was annoying and funny, and, you know, and I just wanted to like tuck her under my wing. But my aunt and I just, we couldn't get along for a lot of reasons. And I think it's a, a lot of the reasons were the reasons my mom couldn't get along with her. <laughs> like, and, and, but unfortunately, you know, I couldn't have a relationship with my cousin's sister without having a relationship with my aunt. And, and so I just lost any and all contact with my little sister. And that was heartbreaking. And so like, there was no way to turn that into a happy ending. Right. And it wasn't even, you know, an ending because it doesn't totally feel ended. Like there's still the possibility, right? That like we could be part of each other's lives, even if I don't see that future. But then, so like one of the final things I end on, right? I don't know if I want to give it away, <laughs> but it's like finding, uh, like marrying my husband. And it happened so quickly. You know, like we, we met in a video game he flew down to see me in Arizona because he lived in Canada a month later. We got engaged a month after that. I flew out to meet his family for the first time a month after that. And we started planning a wedding for two months later. And all of a sudden I was married and moving to Canada. <laughs> like, that is never going to make any sense to anyone who picks up my book 
without it being like basically a book on its own. And so again, it's like, okay, I mean, that's an ending, but is it a happy ending? At the time I didn't know. And so like back to the idea of happiness, you know, it's, it's a thing I've thought about a lot because all I've ever wanted is for the people I love to be happy. All I've ever wanted was to know that like my mother was happy. My sister was happy. My father was happy, even though, you know, like they had all hurt me so much. And I thought, you know, I just think that like, if they could be happy, I can be happy, which is a crazy thing to think. But happiness isn't a destination. It's like a temporary state of being. Um, And so in that sense, this idea of the happy ending is completely meaningless because happiness is ephemeral. And like maybe that moment at the end of the book ends happily, but then the moment after that, like who knows? So it never really felt like the ending of the book was a true ending because that's not really how life works. And I think that's unsatisfying to people, <laughs> but that's, that's just the way I had to write it. That was Danielle Geller, author of Dog Flowers. Dog Flowers is a finalist for the 2022 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize and the 2022 Jim Diva Prize for writing that provokes. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we have a number of events coming up, and you'll want to find out about those, and you can find all the details on our social media and website. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Shauna Paul. Shauna's book, Blue Gate, is a finalist for the 2022 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.